So we have a tall task. The tide of the religious faith in America is set against us. Congratulations, that's the job you guys signed up for. Young people are leaving the church faster than ever because they feel they do not belong to Christianity, they do not believe the Christian faith, and they do not affirm the behavior of Christianity encourages. So where do we begin? Welcome to the Rooted Conference Podcast, Rooted's newest podcast channel. This podcast features plenaries, workshops, and teachings from Rooted's annual conference and other events. The Rooted Conference Podcast is part of the Rooted family of podcasts, which also includes the Rooted Parent Podcast, the Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast, Ask Alice, and Thanos to Theos. To learn more about Rooted's ministry, visit rootedministry.com. Today's episode is recorded at Rooted's 2021 conference in Birmingham, Alabama. To learn more about Rooted's annual conference or to register for this year's event, visit rooted-conference.com. That's rooted-conference.com. In uh, Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the sower. I'm going to read the first nine verses here. He says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, I'm glad that you guys could join us for this final morning at the conference. Uh, I can tell that all of you really want to go out on a high note because this last session that you decided to attend was on why people are leaving the church. And so, you know, I'm glad you guys could leave with extreme amounts of encouragement. Now, in some ways, the whole reason we're even talking about de-churching and the whole concept of de-churching is at the very core of why we're all at this conference. Because the core reason why Rooted was founded was actually to address the de-churching phenomenon that we were seeing in students. Once Cameron Cole, uh, he was on vacation. Uh, This was when I was in Florida. I I don't think people vacation in Mississippi very often. But when I was in Florida, he was on vacation. And so very naturally, I did what anyone else would do. And I asked him to take a break from his vacation and come speak to our church. Uh, he's so willingly obliged, and he came, and we just wanted him to share a little bit about Rooted, to introduce our church a little bit to what they do. And so he started with the history of Rooted at World War II. You know, exactly where you would think when you're thinking of Rooted's origins that they would start at World War II. But the reason he started there is because it's immediately following World War II that we begin to see youth ministry begin to develop even as a concept, that, that people are coming back from the war that there's this, there's this whole new culture that's developing, and that really parents and churches are saying, we got to keep people off the streets, all right? We, we, we need to keep them from, you know, you got all these movies that are 50s, you always got to see them, you got the cigarettes rolled up in the thing, and they're like, we got to stop them from doing that. And so they started to develop this concept called youth ministry. Well, around the turn of the 20th century, sociologists started looking back at the history of youth ministry and to begin to see basically how, 
How has it, how's it been going? Right? How effective have we been? And what they found was is that 70% of kids that were raised in the American church were leaving church after high school. 70%. And so when Rooted was founded, one of their core things, one of their core movements that they wanted to talk about was called flip the statistic. That, that that statistic would instead be 70% are being retained within the church. But then the second round of research wanted to understand why. Why is it that youth ministry has been so effect, uh, ineffective at retaining students, at, at keeping people within church, at committing people to lifelong faith? They found three reasons. One, they found that the church was not equipping parents to spiritually invest in their kids. The kids were not equipped with how to be a church member. And third, that the theology taught them that Christianity was a set of rules that was meant to bolster self-esteem and that God was generally aloof, that he was some sort of emergency. He was like an, a, a heavenly ambulance that you could call on at those times. And so churches were, at their core, they were failing to teach students to believe. They were te- failing to teach them to belong to the church. And then to, you know, have a third B here. They were teaching them how failing to teach them how to behave. And that sounds really bad, but it's teaching, failing to teach them the moral vision that the Bible offers us. And it was in response to these factors that the root, the first rooted conference, which had around this many people in the whole conference, so, uh, was organized. And the reason it was organized is because they saw that the de-churching of America, the de-churching that they were seeing in the church was downstream from youth ministry. So as we and we're going to look at some more statistics in a second. And so before we do that, I want to be clear why we, when we say de-churched and then phenomena, what, what we mean by de-churched and what we mean by phenomena. A Barna study in 2011, well, it really, when we talk about the language of de-churching, that's only a pretty recent term. That there's been all these studies over the course of the last 20 years that have looked at, you know, the unchurched and the rise of the nuns, those who have zero religious affiliation, uh, the looking at people who are atheists, agnostics, and there's certainly overlap with those groups, but it's only been within about the last 10 years that sociologists have begun to study those who once were faithful attenders of church and have since not, is no longer part of the regular rhythms. Uh, and in 2015, Barna identified this group uh, as those who were frequent attenders of church, but have not attended worship service in over six years. And so in the same study, they, they were also looking at the largest cities when it comes to percentage of population in the city that were de-churched. And so they listed cities you might think of, okay, maybe like it was San Francisco is number one, Portland. But actually they found that every city in America, major city was like over, you know, the top 30 populous cities in America, over 30% of the population in that city were in this group group of people that grew up within the church or at one point were faithful attenders of church and now are no longer attending. Even in the city that I was in, Orlando was in the top five, Orlando, Florida, of people who de-churched. Uh, but that study is what really put the de-church as a, as a group on people's radars. But it wasn't until recently we really began to understand the, the whole scope of what that was. And so some research that was literally conducted just within the last six months uh, hasn't even been published what they found is, and this is, this is starting, here's what they found. We are currently experiencing the largest shift in American religious history. There are between 50 and 60 million de-churched in America. That is 25 to 30% of the adult population. Of all of Americans, 25 to 30% of the population would be considered de-churched. That the de-churching we've seen in the last 25 years 
is 2.3 times faster than any positive or negative movement we've seen at any other time in, 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 since the American Revolution. That, that we are seeing in such, it's so rapid that it's bigger than any movement we've ever seen. And in a lot of times, we feel this movement happening in our church on a local basis, and we haven't even begun to really wrestle with the fact that this is actually something that's happening all across America. One quarter of Americans have shifted their religious affiliation from in the church to out of the church in their lifetime. So the question we have to answer is, what does that mean for youth ministry? That's why we're at the Rooted Conference. We're not just talking about de-church conceptually. What does that mean for the way we do youth ministry? And here's what the answer is. We are ministering to students who have an entire movement working against lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ. That there is wave upon wave that is either pulling them out of the church or slowly nudging them out of the church. That's working against lifelong commitment. And so our ministries can not only be committed to making sure that we're ministering to them when they're in 7th to 12th grade, or even, it can't even be just committed to ministering to them, to making sure that they're good when they go to college. But our ministry mindset, our philosophy of ministry has to be committed to preparing them for what it looks like to follow Jesus for their entire life. We have to have a far longer view in the way we do youth ministry. Now, thus far, it's not been too encouraging. Hey, People are leaving the church, and it's your fault. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not what I'm trying to say. But there is actually an, an encouraging seed underneath this. And is that right now it's really popular, and I'm sure you guys you know, see YouTube videos, and you, you see all the things of people telling their deconstruction stories. Basically, it's, they're, they're telling their de-churching testimony. And at the core of a lot of these stories is their youth ministry experience, that they're sharing reasons why uh, you know, they, they left the church and it's because the, the youth ministry they were in was antagonizing or the youth ministry they were in was hurtful to them or, or didn't answer their questions or whatever it may be. And again, it sounds really discouraging, but there's, there's a core nugget here that's really encouraging. It's that youth ministry was still deeply impactful on them at this season in their life. The youth ministry still was so impactful to their story that years later, they're going and telling everyone about how impactful it was. The impact was simply in a negative direction. Well, if that's the case, if youth ministry really is this impactful, then that means that it can still be that impactful, but before the good, before commitment to lifelong faith in Jesus Christ. So today we're going to spend our time, we're going to do two things. We're going to look at how youth ministries cannot be overwhelmed by the challenge of de-churching, but can actually address it in such a way that builds lifelong commitment to Christ in the context of the church. So first we're going to look at the factors for de-churching, and the second we'll look at how the church can actually address them. And my hope is that each one of us would leave here today. And we would leave here with a better understanding of what our students are facing, the challenges that they're facing, but also a better understanding of how we can equip them. And so first, the factors of de-churching. Now I want to stop and I want to ask you guys, from the, your time in youth ministry and the students that you've known, maybe the people you went to school with, what are some of the factors that you've heard from your students of the reasons why they ultimately walked away from the church and walked away from the faith after they left school? Okay. Yeah, I think the biggest one that I hear either about because of doubt or I just don't want to practice it is LGBTQ plus issues. Right. Yeah. In the studies that we've seen on, de- on the whole de-churching movement, the group of de-churched have far different... LGBTQ was the biggest political, I guess you could say, issue that they had the, the difference between Christians and them. It was just without a question. So that yeah, that's a big one. 
Just the question of human suffering and God. Yeah. Yeah. Human suffering for sure, especially when it gets personal. Yeah. The integrity of authority of scripture. The integrity of authority of scripture, right. Because all it takes is one one YouTube video with some guy that sounds really smart and he's telling you that, oh, actually, you know, no, Moses didn't write Genesis. That was written by this guy after they had come out of exile and they were trying to create a mythical history to make themselves look good. And you're like, well, that guy's really smart. So it's like, yeah, that sounds right. So yeah, definitely the authority is the of scripture. Yes. We're going to talk a lot about that one for sure. So yeah, Christianity feels completely detached from their lives. I would think apathy. Apathy that's really compared. It's not related to that. Yes. Certainly. We'll talk about that in a second, too. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about all these things. Like a big general cynicism towards anything. So offering any hope, they're like, uh, but it just sounds like a fairy tale, really. Right. I had a youth minister that was telling me that even, even in teaching, when he's talking, and it's like, it, you know, it can just be something like, you know, the church actually isn't full of hypocrites. And they're sitting in the front row, rolls their eyes. And she's like, I, I didn't say anything that controversial. I just said that it was not full of hypocrites, you know, and stuff. But there's just a cynicism to, oh, the church. And it's cool. It's cool to be like that. It's cool to reject it. We'll talk. Any other ones? All of these, you guys are hitting so many of the factors that studies are showing us, but that shows that we don't, we don't necessarily need studies to, see, to know what we see in our daily life and stuff, so. When we discuss the factors behind dechurching, it's actually helpful to break it down into, into two different categories of the way that they dechurch. And so one is the casually dechurched. And what I mean by that is the factors that led them to leaving the church are primarily defined by convenience and life changes. So this is they fell out of church in some ways. And this is what, he, what you're talking about with apathy, just a general apathy. They fell out of church. And then the other category is the casualty dechurched. And what we mean by that is that the factors that led to them leaving church are primarily defined by deep animating concerns about the teaching and the practices or the community of the church itself. So if the casually dechurched fell out of church in some way, the casualty dechurched feel like they were pushed out of church. We're going to break up that. We're going to look at each of these closer. We'll look first at the casually dechurched. So the main concern of the casually dechurched are that they, there's an inability to fit in and find deep personal relationships in the church. And thus a, a major life change occurs like moving, like suffering, just simply an uptick in busyness. And so they just don't return to church. So the animating concern for those who are casually dechurched is belonging. They just don't feel like they belong. If they felt like they belong, they would return. If they felt like they belong, this would be something they were committed to. So it's, it's at their core, it's a, it's a problem of belonging. Now, this is a huge reason, huge thing whenever we minister to students. Why? Because the nature of our ministry is that there's going to be a major life change at the end of their time in our ministry. That, that every student who comes to our ministry will leave our ministry. Hopefully, I guess, you know, unless they're like, just keep failing senior year or something like that. And, that, and that's the case you have other problems. And so they step, the second they step out of our ministry, these casual factors start working against them. The casual movement out of the church is a powerful force for students who are moving into college towns with few people they know, or they're moving into careers and relationships that vie for their time and commitment. Right? I, I currently serve as the associate pastor of college and youth in Oxford, Mississippi. It's a quintessential college town. It's named Oxford because we wanted to get a university. So we named it after Oxford, England. 
we, our colors are Harvard red and Yale blue because we were just like, please give us a college. The whole reason the town exists is for college students. So every year, I see thousands of students come on campus and many of them grew up in, in, in families where church was a part of their regular rhythm. And yet statistics tell us that, those, that 90% of those students will never step foot in a church. They'll never even, they'll never even try it. College is full of other places to eat up their time. Every student I know is overextended, they're, they're overcommitted, and they're underslept. They're, they're far more concerned about building their resume. I mean, they've got clubs, they've got sports, they've got class. Church is a luxury for those who just have life figured out. So I've, I've got I've to take care of all this other stuff before I can consider adding something on my Sunday morning. I mean, in Ole Miss, they're about to play at 11 o'clock. I had to leave my phone over there because I'd not be tempted to pull it out and start streaming and midway through the talk. Well, when I was a student, I felt that factor in the sense of, well, I got class Monday through Friday, then Saturday, game, Sunday's the only day I have to sleep. I, I, I need to take that. Sunday's the only day to do schoolwork. Career, we all know, we all work a career. <laughs> it's like, you feel that. I mean, sometimes even as ministers, you wake up on Sunday mornings and you're like, I just wish I could sleep in today. There's these casual factors that are pulling against them. But the sad reality is that the majority of these students have never been taught that church is a place where they can find deep belonging and loving. I mean, and love. Or they've had experiences that have taught them the opposite. The church is definitely not a place where you can find belonging and love. If they feel they do not belong, or they've never been prepared for what it looks like to belong to a church, what it looks like to be committed to a church, then the second that that rhythm gets broken, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna move out. And it's not, it's not malicious, it's not intentional, it's not even intentional. It's, it's just these casual factors are slowly pushing them. So that's the casually D church, primarily concerned with belonging. Now let's look at the casualty D church. The main concern of the casualty D church is direct concerns with the church itself. Something about the teachings and the practices or their personal experience with the church have pushed them out. And so their animating concern. As I mentioned, we said if the casualty is belonging, their animating concerns are primarily defined by belief and behavior, by what by by what they think Christianity is teaching them and how Christianity is telling them to live. The Barna study I referenced at the beginning looked at the six main reasons why students leave the church, and they do an excellent job of, of defining this group. And this is the six reasons they cite. First, the church fails to connect to the actual world they live in. So that's what we talked about right here. Instead, they, they feel like the church is demonizing and always opposed to other worldviews and cultures. The, the church is in some ways is overprotective. It won't even engage if they ask a question. When I was at Ole Miss, I took a philosophy of religion class. And the first day of class, the professor asked, who grew up in church? And it was like everyone in there raised their hand. And then he asked, how many of you felt like you were, felt safe to ask questions if you had doubts? No one raised their hand. And then he, and I guess I was like, no, I didn't feel like it was that bad. <laughs> and then he was like, and he started asking for people's, basically their experiences with that. And there was all these people that were like, I grew up in a Catholic church, or I grew up in a Baptist church, and I grew up in a And it would just be just a small question, even a question of how can a good God allow suffering? And the response they got was, that's a faithless question. That if, if you had faith, you wouldn't even be asking. That you should trust God. That was the, that was the primary response. That, like all these people were like, "Yeah, that's exactly what I got too." Second, the church is found to be shallow. Now, this point doesn't necessarily speak of the relevance of the church's teaching, but rather the depth. 
of the church's teaching. The study found that young people who have departed the church most frequently found the Bible to not, to not be taught enough or clearly enough. 20% of this group even said, God seems missing from my experience of church. They would say, God felt like he wasn't even a part of my experience. Of church. <laughs> Third, churches come across as antagonistic to science. These young people found that the church is confident, that the church was overly confident that they had all the answers so they wouldn't even engage on conversations of scientific discoveries. They described the church as anti-science. Fourth, the church's teaching on sexuality are simplistic and judgmental. So they think the church's teaching on sexuality are outdated or they're unnecessarily restrictive. But they also found that their mistakes in this area, that if they had felt like they had fallen sexually, were, were only met with judgment. Fifth, young people who de-church wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. So they've been inundated with a culture, of a, with a culture that preaches open-mindedness, inclusivity, tolerance, acceptance. And so they wrestle with a faith that claims that Jesus is the only way. But even more, this point drives home that they felt like Christianity was a, was a social club rather than any sort of real commitment to a doctrine. It was for insiders rather than any real openness to anything outside. Sixth, the study found that the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. That's what I talked about a second ago, but they do not feel safe admitting that Christianity doesn't make sense to them. They fear that asking any question will have them labeled as an outsider, and that young people feel isolated and alone in Christianity, wondering if any, anyone else understands their struggles. Now, when we consider these six reasons, we can likely think of students you can place a finger on like that, this concern right here, that's why that's the one. Or this concern right here, that's why, that's, that's, that's the person that's in my youth group right now and they have that concern. The nature of doing youth ministry, even if we don't, even if you look now at your group and you say, I don't think anyone has this, or I think I'm doing a good job in these six areas. But the problem is if we're, if we're still failing to engage them, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have these concerns now, but I can tell you that once they leave church, especially if they go to college, they're going to be immediately met with these concerns. I, a friend of mine who I worked with when I worked for Crew doing college ministry, she texted me over the summer and she was like, hey, would you meet with my younger brother? He's a freshman in Ole Miss. He, he's in the Honors College. And in the Honors College, their first two classes they take is one is like worldview and cultures. And the second class is religion and science. And he was already pretty untethered from the church. He had not, you know, been attending church. But he was really faithful in high school, but hadn't been attending church since he went to college. And this, cl and this class is not opposed to Christianity. I took this class. And if anything, it's really just exposing you to the fact that there is other worldviews. That it's actually it's just challenging you to be open to the fact that the world is maybe not what you grew up around. But it completely wrecked his faith. I mean, he was, I mean, he said, he told me that he had such anxiety. He couldn't even sleep at night. Because for the first time, he felt he was so challenged. Now, what does he need? Or what did he need? Well, he needed someone to walk through him now. He needed someone to walk through him in the current moment. But he also needed someone that would prepare him for those moments, for these challenges, before they even came. So we have a task, a tall task. The tide of the religious faith in America is set against us. Congratulations, that's the job you guys signed up for. Young people are leaving the church faster than ever because they feel they do not belong to Christianity, they do not believe the Christian faith, and they do not affirm the behavior of Christianity encourages. So where do we begin? Third, addressing the G-Church. We'll break these down into the, the belief, belonging, behavior. We'll address each of them in turn. And then we can, if we have time left, we can chat a little bit about it. But first, belief. 
Hi, I'm Davis Lacey, podcast producer for the Rooted Family of Podcasts and host of the Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast. Our podcast features conversations from leading authors, speakers, thinkers, and leaders across the evangelical world. Names like Sam Albury, Sho Baraka, Tim Chalice, Dr. Brian Chappell, Rachel Gilson, Jen Pollock-Michelle, Dr. Russell Moore, and so many others. These leaders don't simply talk about ministry in abstract ways. They apply their unique voices and experiences to the world of youth ministry, practically helping youth workers serve teenagers in grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated ways. You can find the Rooted Youth Ministry podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts or by visiting rootedministry.com. I hope you'll join us. But for now, back to our show from the Rooted Family of Podcasts. Young people are leaving the church faster than ever because they feel they do not belong to Christianity, they do not believe the Christian faith, and they do not affirm the behavior Christianity encourages. So where do we begin? Third, addressing the G-Church. We'll break these down into the, the belief, belonging, behavior. We'll address each of them in turn. And then we can, if we have time left, we can chat a little bit about it. But first, belief. So especially in today's world, teenagers have unlimited access to platforms that do not treat them as children. From the second they get a phone in their hand or they have access to a computer, the internet is not treating them as children. It's actually putting adult content before them. TikTok, YouTube, other social media platforms are full of teachers. Right? We may not think of that. We may look at the video and think, this guy's an idiot. Or, you know, but it's full of teachers who are making direct appeals to them about weighty matters. Sadly, when they look at the church, they don't find teachers that are treating them like adults. They find, they find a place that looks to entertain them or to distract them, but certainly not to shape them, certainly not to challenge them. So their assumption is that if they're not being taught with depth Christianity, then there just must not be much to see. It's no wonder that people look at, see in these studies that they see Christianity as shallow or antagonistic to deep thought or so easy to walk away from. But if we believe that the scriptures are the very word of God and the gospel is the only message that can transform the human heart, then the story of the Bible is deeply relevant to every one of our students. As a minister of the gospel, we're not called to make the gospel relevant. The gospel is relevant to their lives. If it's the only thing that can transform their lives, if it's the only thing that can rescue them, there's nothing that could be more relevant. So we're not called to make the gospel relevant. We're to trust that it is already relevant and to present it as such. And we can do this in two ways. First, we must teach the gospel to their questions. Our students are questioning the Bible's sexual ethic. They're, they're questioning the authority of scripture, as we mentioned. They look at the, the, the political climate that we see in the world. They look at all these other issues and they say, oh, what does Christianity have to say about this? They're wondering why they experience pain and suffering. All these questions are really present on their minds. Even if they don't feel comfortable asking you, they're, they're asking someone, whether that's the internet or you. And we have confidence that the Bible speaks powerfully to these questions. If, but if we do not create space in our ministry or have courage to address them, then they're going to find the answers elsewhere. When we address the pressure points that they're bringing into the room, we're actually showing them that one, that we value them as people, that, that, that their questions are, are valuable, that they are valuable people. But we're also saying that your question is valid. You're not crazy for thinking this. 
or you don't, it's, it's not that I have it all figured out, you know, that's a, it's that they're valuable people, that the question is valid, but also that the Bible has a voice on this issue. But if we avoid them, we're telling them the complete opposite. We don't value your questions. This isn't a valid question. The Bible has nothing to say on the issue. This is the approach Rebecca McLaughlin takes in her book, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. Walking through it with our uh, interns at our church. And this is what she writes in the introduction about her goals in writing the book. She says, rather than protecting my kids from divergent ideas or urging them to affirm all beliefs equally, I want to equip them to have real conversations with real people who think differently from them and from me. If what I believe is true, it will stand up to scrutiny. Second, we must teach the gospel in their language. Uh, this does not mean keeping up on social media with the latest Gen Z lingo. I actually had a pastor friend in Orlando who uh, literally one day just was texting and we were like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> we couldn't figure out what he was talking about because he had literally Googled Gen Z lingo and was actually trying to make himself more relevant. Like I, this was a real thing that I saw happen. But guys, let me tell you, it's just embarrassing. So you, don't, 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 don't do that. When we say teach the gospel to the language, we're not saying... Look up, the latest, look up the latest lingo. What I mean is speak the gospel in a language they are familiar with so as not to create so many barriers, but to foster understanding. Right? Overly theological, esoteric, or specific Bible language may be unfamiliar to them and cause them to tune out. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean to, you need to avoid those words. You don't need to avoid words like justification or, or covenant altogether. Rather, they have to be introduced and defined in a way that allows teenagers to really to relate in such a way that they can carry the meaning with them. If they can't carry that meaning out with them, then, it, then they're not going to. They're going to leave it in the seat. That's actually, I, I was looking earlier today at the Jesus I Wish I Knew in high school. That's one of the, one of the things that, you know, if you haven't got it, if you haven't picked it up, you can pick one upstairs. But at the end of each chapter, each one of these is essentially just a testimony from uh, the author's high school experience. And at the end of each chapter, they actually, from one of the topics they talk about, they, there's a definition for students on, on one of the topics they talked about and then what it means for you. So this is the one on justification. It says, the justification, and it says noun, so hope our students know what a noun is, the twofold process, <laughs> the twofold process whereby a person's sins are forgiven and they, through faith, receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. All right, it's a pretty simple definition here. It's a twofold process. Through faith, you're forgiven, and you're given the righteousness of Christ. But then also the definition goes on. What does this mean for you? Because of Christ's perfect righteousness, you are now declared righteous and perfectly acceptable to God. As a result, you can feel comfortable in your own skin. It, it, just that line alone right there is it, automatically, it's applying the doctrine. You can feel comfortable in your own skin. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more or less worthy to God. It gets really personal right there. But it's all still talking about justification. Each one of these has a different identity in Christ. It's who you are based on who Christ is. That's the definition now here. This is teaching the gospel in their language. This is not dumbing down. This is contextualizing our students so that our students can intellectually engage rather than putting up walls before, they even, before they've even walked in the door. To engage students on this level puts a massive calling on us. Puts a massive calling because it means that we have to put in time and effort to learn their questions to learn their language, and to also learn the answers that they are receiving. That we, we don't need to only know our response from, from the Bible. We need to know what's the other answer that they're getting and how that we can actually show that that answer is not a, a coherent worldview that, that you can actually live with. 
That means that we have to apply the word of God so broadly in our own hearts and so broadly in, in this world that we can actually know. We, we've already done the hard work of, of applying it in our lives in the world so that whenever they ask us, we, we can already go ahead and communicate that because we've done that work ourselves. Seeking to engage students this way also means we must take these students seriously as disciples. We should not shy away from presenting them with hard concepts or challenging them through the implications of what a text means. But in giving space for them to think for themselves, they'll see that, that Christianity has something to offer for themselves. Look, I always tell my kids, I'm like, look, if you guys are taking like chemistry, you, you guys are way smarter than me because I, chemistry never clicked for me. Physics never clicked for me. Math, I'm horrible at math. I was teaching on like Abraham and it was like uh, Genesis 17. And I was like, okay, so he was 70 something here and he was 99 here. So that was like, oh, well, this was 14 years. And they were like, what? No, no, no. Like I, in the moment, it was like just messing up my math. Terrible math. I always tell these kids, you're dealing with hard concepts. There's no reason why you can't deal with hard concepts in the Bible. We can wrestle with them, but we have to be presenting it that way, that they can actually wrestle with this. It's Once they, be, they have been challenged to think and interact with the gospel message in our teaching, it will make sense in its central place because we'll be presenting God in its central place at the center of their lives. Even more wonderfully, we'll give God his rightful place at the center of all we do. So that's belief. Second, belonging. So as we saw, the factors that led to people de-churching in a casual way, they're at their core tied to the fact that they don't, they never felt they were substantially part of the church. They never felt they were substantially part of the church in the first place. So it's not that church burned them. It's that the church did not play an active role in their life outside of weekly attendance. So whenever life took them out of the weekly rhythm, they just simply never returned. Thus, it is essential that our ministries are always pointing our students toward the ministry of the whole church. From the very beginning of their time, is, does your youth ministry serve as a door to the ministry of the whole church? Or is youth ministry the end-all, be-all of their involvement in the church? Are we teaching students what it looks like to belong to Christ and to belong to his people? How are we doing that? How do you teach that? But also, I just want to, real quick, I want to read you two studies that, that talk about the importance of involving the whole church. Fuller Youth Institute has found that the number one way the church has made students feel welcomed and valued was when adults in the congregation showed interest in them more than any program ever the event. Just other adults, not their parents, showing interest was the number one way to make them feel connected to the church. Christian Smith, who's a sociologist at Notre Dame, he found that research suggests that among the most important of these channeling influences is the presence of non-family adults in religious congregations who know the children well and engage them in serious topics beyond superficial chit-chat. The more such adults are present, the more a church, a temple, a synagogue, or mosque feels like a community or an extended family. The studies are clear. You have to involve the whole church in your ministry. If you're, if you're living it simply because you're just like, I, I want them to be here. I want them to feel like it's fun. I want them to have young people they can look up to. If you're just limiting it to just that, you're limiting them from one of the most powerful influences that would will, that will teach them what it looks like to have lifelong faith in Jesus Christ. Connor Cosgrave, who's one of the youth ministers, he was talking to me about this point earlier. And the, the, word that, uh, the term that he used is that we have to give them plausibility structures. That it's, it, it, I, I know what it looks like to follow Jesus as a, as a single person. I know what it looks like to follow Jesus as someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. I know what it looks like to follow Jesus when you're 70. Why? Because I've seen it. I was, a, I was around the church. I was taking communion with the church. That, that, when I was in the lobby on Sunday morning, that, that, that this man was coming up to me, that this, this older woman was meeting with me. 
I've seen what it looks like because I've been involved in the whole church from the very beginning. There's a few ways we could do that. We could talk about them afterwards. We're running out of time, so I'm going to skip some of them. Catch me afterwards if you want to talk more about some practical ways you can do that. Uh, but all of them are just small examples of how the church can minister to every student. Just things like including young people in your sermons. Just making direct appeals to them. Showing them, showing them they're, they're there. Or, or giving them meaningful roles in church. How, how open is your church really to students? Could they serve? Could they pray? If, you know, if they're a baptized communing member of the church, could they pray on Sunday morning if they, if they were spiritually mature enough to do so? Could they go to a men or, women, men or women's retreat? How, how could they serve in the, in the parking ministry, in the children's ministry? How, involved, how open is your church really to them? How well do your, uh, another question, how, how well do your leaders know them? Could your elders even, could your elders or other church leadership, could they name the students in your ministry? Could they, do they know any of their struggles? They, how would they even know how to pray for them? There's all these small ways that bring the whole church into the ministry. But it's, it's, it's bringing the whole church into the ministry to them. But also, that means that they're also ministering to the whole church. That if, if, the, if we're described the church as the body of Christ, and we say that there's no, you know, from the top to the bottom, the, the highest to the lowest, they're all important members of the body of Christ. Well, that includes students. And that means students are important to ministering to the church just as much as the church is important to ministering to students. Our third behavior. This past week, I was reading. Uh, I was reading an article in the New York Times about the just the rise of memoirs uh, on the bestsellers list. So in the last twenty years, memoirs have shot up to be some of the most popular books, kind of come out of nowhere. Like, I mean, just recently, or like over the last two years, the number one bestselling book's been Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Just memoirs. They just they just strike us. It's so powerful. And what what this uh, article was looking at was actually talking about that. This is actually pretty common in the course of American history that that personal stories of overcoming the odds of achieving things has actually been goes all the way back to even before America was established as its own independent country that um, some of the biggest bestsellers in early America were stories of going out west and all and all of these other things in 1892 Walt Whitman you know the famous poet he immortalized this American fascination with telling stories about ourselves in his poem called song of myself and the first line is I celebrate myself and I sing myself. The individualism that defines American culture is artistically expressed in our desire to tell stories of ourselves, to sing of ourselves. The philosopher Charles Taylor has noted that since the 1800s, the stories we sing of ourselves find a special, powerful testimony in our religious lives. This is what he writes. Or, or the, the that the intellectual growth has largely been defined by the coming of age genre. That that's the way we talk about our intellectual growth. It's as if it's a coming of age. Uh, one writer summarized this. He said, doubting the faith you inherited from your parents has become a heroic step into intellectual adulthood and maturity. In our age, embracing an allegedly humble uncertainty instead of harsh dogmatism is praiseworthy. So when we consider the subject of people who de-church, because due to their failure to live within the moral teachings of Scripture commands and commends, we're not simply just saying, oh, well, they just think they were crazy. We're actually encountering a counter-narrative. This is huge. In order to address this competing vision for how humans should live, we have to first understand that it is at the core, it's telling a competing story of who humans are and what we were made to be. The world's narrative is that you're the, you're the only one who gets to define yourself. You're the only one who gets to define what's good and right for you. Liz Edrington 
She writes, authenticity, happiness, and self-fulfillment are fundamental goods and goals in their world. Judgment and constraint are two of the biggest evils. So the world is singing them Elsa's song. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for man for, you know, and let it go. That's the, that's the song that the world is teaching them to sing. And Christianity is the village that's trying to constrain her in that song. So how do we counter that narrative? We, we counter the narrative by telling a true, beautiful, and better story that God offers in his word. The story of Christianity begins with the God before there is a story. It begins with the God who is altogether blessed, who lacks nothing, and abounds in love and joy within himself. It's the vision the Bible gives us of the God that in the beginning God created, that God from all eternity was blessed and happy and joyous within himself. And it is from this fullness that he delights to bring others into this inner Trinitarian blessedness. Do you see what that means about who we are as humans? When we talk about who this God is, that actually tells us about who we are. Humans are those who are created to enjoy this blessed life of God. God's concern for our flourishing is at the very center of why he created us. That we are created that we might partake in this life. Understanding in our origins helps us to understand the moral vision the Bible gives us. God's law is not, it's not then seen as restrictive, but it acts as a guide to the blessed life that sin so obscures. The story of Scripture shows that since the Garden of Eden, mankind has sought to assert its own vision of where happiness and joy can be found over God's vision for flourishing, that we would look past the whole garden filled with good things at the mere suggestion that there was one tree that we couldn't have. The story also shows, though, that God has acted to overcome our brokenness, and he sought our flourishing even when we were set against our own flourishing. Here's the truth we have to convey over and over again. The word of God, especially the commands of Scripture, are not working against their flourishing. It's not working against their happiness. It's not even working against their freedom. But it's explicitly there to lead them into their joy, into their blessedness, and into freedom. So no matter what sin your student is struggling with, or no matter what question of the Bible's moral vision that the student asks, and there's all kinds of ways we would need to address specific ones. But overall, we have to keep in mind what this really is. We can approach them with the glorious truth of God's commands and God's, God's glorious grace for those who have fallen into struggle. This is an approach that is not demonizing. It's not antagonizing. It's not judgmental. It's an approach that presents God's worth with truth and grace, not shying away in embarrassment from what he commands, but, extending God's, but also extending God's kindness to those who fail that God still offers us this path to himself through Jesus Christ. Now, when we started, I read eight verses from Matthew 13. We never talked about it. So the reason I read from Matthew 13 is when we're looking at the parable of the soils, the core message of Matthew 13 is not just, well, how can, where can I diagnose my students and, and which way are they de-churching and which heart soil are they? Even though in, in each of the heart souls, there's still an external factor to it. Satan comes and snatches up the seed on the one, the sun scorches in the other, and the thorns choke out the other. There is still some external thing, like just like as we talked about with de-churched. But the core message of Matthew 13 is that, that God himself is sovereign over the soils. 
Now, here's why that's encouraging. We, whenever our students leave the faith, we can, we can blame ourselves. We can, even you could walk away from this talk and you could say, well, these are all the ways that I felt. And the reason the students left my ministry is because I did not engage them in the way that, you know, we just talked about. And you could blame yourselves. But it would be pointless for us to say all that we've said about how the church can work against this and to not also then affirm that the very reason we can have hope that even when students leave, and even the students in our thing, the reason we can even have hope and lament and grief but continue to pray and intercede for them and share the gospel with them is because God is sovereign over their hearts. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the story that Jesus is trying to tell in the parable of the soils, is not that, well, it's, you know, they're just, they're just hopeless if they've left. It's actually that you can go and you can share the gospel with confidence because I am sovereign over the soils. No student is ever too far gone. No student can deconstruct or dechurch their way out of the reach of God. Let us have confidence in this truth, even as we consider the ways that we can better minister to them. Father, we thank you that you are the Lord of the harvest, that you have sent each one of us into this harvest. Lord, help us to remember what a joy it is to be amongst those who have been sent into your harvest, who are counted in your people. Help us to belong to your church, to belong to the faith, to believe in the faith, to, to, be, to, to, to live with this moral vision better as an example before our students and continue to teach us through your word how we can be better ministers and better servants in this harvest. In your name I pray. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rooted Conference podcast. If you found this podcast helpful or encouraging, we'd appreciate your help in bringing this grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated content to others who might also benefit. Help us serve others by sharing this resource on social media, by leaving five-star feedback, or simply by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated resources, be sure to visit rootedministry.com. As always, special thanks to High Street Hymns for providing the music on this podcast. Come.